Hi, podcast listeners. This is another chapter in the ongoing serialization of Fates Version Death Sunrise Hotel, a full-length novel that takes place in the Fates Version Death universe. We'll be doing one chapter every other week, uh, free on the podcast, or if you want to listen to or read the whole thing now, you can go to www.fatesworsendeath.com and buy the complete novel. When you buy the paper version of the novel, you'll get access to the complete audiobook that you can download in MP3 format. Fates vs. Death Sunrise Hotel contains some pretty heavy subject matter, including some sexual violence, so these podcasts are intended for mature listeners only. Fates vs. Death Sunrise Hotel, a novel by Brian St. Clair King. This story takes place in the world of Fates vs. Death, the role-playing game. next day. The women were woken up early. Tina felt like she had only slept about six hours or so. Groggily, she waited in line in the bathroom. Following the lead of those around her, Tina stripped, took a shower in barely lukewarm water, dried herself off with a towel from a pile that had been used by several other women before her, and put her dirty clothes back on. Tina was shivering, but noticed nobody else was. The blonde girl explained that on Wednesdays and Sundays, everyone would change into new clothes, picking whatever fit them from a pile of clean clothes, and leaving their dirty clothes to be washed over the next few days. They went to breakfast, rejoining the men and families. Breakfast was more of the goopy white stuff Tina had been given in her cell. At least it was warm, but it left Tina still feeling famished, craving something with salt or protein. After breakfast, they went quickly off to work. The blonde girl, who said her name was Jen, told Tina that they traded off on jobs so that nobody got too bored. Tina, Jen, and several other cult members went out into the courtyard at the center of the building. Tina had only seen the courtyard in the dark the night before. Now she could see chest-high wooden trellises with green plants entwined in them, and tall plants growing from the ground between the trellises. The greenery grew to the edges of the courtyard, with only small gravel pathways leading to the interior. Tina figured this must be where much of the cult's food came from, and so someone took care to make the most efficient use of the limited space. Tina wondered if one of these plants was made into the mushy white stuff she had been eating. Jen showed Tina what plants were weeds. With a piece of cardboard to keep their knees from getting muddy, they knelt and pulled weeds out with their hands. What is this place? Tina asked. You never heard of the cloisters? Jen asked. Tina shook her head no. It used to be an art museum. It's made from pieces of medieval monasteries shipped over from Europe. They shipped over all these pieces of monasteries and put them all together. It got abandoned at some point during the Freedom Wars, probably, and all the art was taken out. Adriel took it over a few years ago. It's the perfect place for us. It's easy to defend, and you can feel it's a holy place. Where are the cloisters? Up on a hill on the northern end of Manhattan, past Harlem and Washington Heights. Oh, said Tina, who had only been dimly aware that there was anything past Washington Heights. Just as Tina was trying to think about the consequences of this new information, the people in the field started singing a song. It was a round, a song where people started singing at different times, like Row, Row, Row Your Boat, but of course it was about the light. Jen motioned to Tina with a warm smile when it was Tina's turn, and Tina sang with them. It was annoying to Tina because she couldn't think and sing at the same time. The song seemed to go on and on for hours. Next came lunch, which was some dark brown bread with a slightly bitter taste, and something smeared on it which was a bit like butter but not as salty. Then, the cultists went into various rooms for what Jen told her would be encounter sessions. Jen and Tina and about 20 other cultists sat in a circle on small cushions. An older cult member with a glowing bracelet on his wrist led the group. He seemed to know something about the life stories of the cultists in the group because he gave them prompts like, Tell us more about your mother, or tell us about what you did when you lived in that squat. The whole session seemed to be people listing off horrible things they'd done or that had been done to them. 
There was a lot of crying. One woman recounted in great detail her two miscarriages and the following breakup of her marriage. There was a lot of terrible stuff, and it made Tina feel like everyone's lives were just as fucked up as hers, or worse. Tina, said the older man, you haven't said anything yet. I, I don't, I don't know what the deal is here. I mean, sorry. We've all suffered in the darkness. We're here to let go, shed the pain so we can be with the light, truly with it, without any of that pain holding us back. So I should just talk about bad stuff that happened to me? How about your parents? Why don't you talk about your parents? My parents? Tina asked. I don't have a lot to say about them. I mean, they never did anything bad to me. They never beat me. They always kept me fed and clothed. Those aren't the only responsibilities of parents, the older man said. Did they meet your emotional needs? Tina had to think about it. What were her emotional needs? To be liked, respected, loved? Well, my mom, I was sure she loved me, but then she died. My dad, uh, I think he loved me, but I was never so sure. But that's probably not his fault. I was always sort of insecure. Several in the group shook their heads or made noises of disapproval. We never blamed a child, said the older man. Our parents are responsible for building a secure emotional foundation through which we can experience our environment without fear or doubt. It's not your fault if your parents failed to give that to you. I guess, said Tina. Why don't you tell us some of the times your father made you feel unloved? Tina told them some stories. Now, looking back on it, they seemed like minor incidents, and Tina was afraid it made her seem thin-skinned or like a whiner. It was all offhand comments or failure to invite her to participate in some activity or some minor criticism of something she had done. Yet at the time, it had upset her incredibly, left her screaming and crying uncontrollably and scratching her thighs and arms with her fingernails. It upset her so much, she realized, because it seemed like proof that her parents didn't love her or didn't think she was worthy of respect. Most of them involved her father, but there were ones involving her mother, too. Not only had she believed her parents thought horrible things about her, she believed that they must be right. Tina started to cry as she told her stories. Her head hung down and she talked into the floor, and hands patted her softly on the back and shoulders. It made her feel close to the people around her, even though they were all strangers to her. When Tina paused after the end of the story, the old man said, Tina, I'd like you to denounce your parents. Denounce? asked Tina and sniffled. Your parents have hurt you. That's true of pretty much everyone here. But they will keep hurting you if you keep wanting things from them, keep expecting them to fill an emotional need that they never will. As long as you think of them as your parents, you're going to keep wishing that they would give you what parents are supposed to give you, and your wounds can never heal. I want you to give up on them ever giving you what you needed. I want you to let them go. Can you do that? I guess, Tina said. Okay, repeat after me. The people who I once called mom and dad are no longer my parents. She repeated. They no longer owe me anything, and I no longer owe anything to them. She repeated, fresh tears forming in her eyes. They mean nothing special to me. Tina choked out the words. I do not need them. I do not want them. She repeated. That's good, he said. Tina was staring at the floor, and he put comforting hands on her shoulders. When she looked up, she saw people all around were smiling at her, saying, Good job! After encounter sessions, Jen took Tina to the kitchen to prepare for dinner. The kitchen was crowded with people. Tina's job, along with three other cult members, was to wash bowls in a trough of slightly soapy water with a rag. She handed them off to another cult member, who dried them with another rag. The water was fairly dirty, and none of it seemed very sanitary to her. Other people in the kitchen were rinsing and chopping greens for salads. Tina snuck glances at the knives in the kitchen, wishing there was a way she could grab one without people seeing. People started coming by to get food, and Tina handed bowls through the door. Finally, the kitchen staff took their bowls. There seemed to be exactly one bowl per person, because there were no bowls left. Tina wondered if this was a means to make sure nobody escaped. Was one of those people Adriel? Tina asked Jen, who had been handing out bowls with her. 
No, Jen said. Adriel and the Archons don't eat with us. Did someone bring them their food they eat, or did they eat different food from us? Tina asked. She couldn't imagine the people in charge of this place eating the same tasteless, insubstantial stuff Tina had been eating. Jen shrugged. Since they were the last to sit, the kitchen crew had to split up and find the few remaining seats. Before Tina could sit, the lights went out. Everyone immediately started praying, almost as if they were frightened of the dark. There was some starlight coming in from the windows above, and Tina began to make out its shapes. Perhaps she could sneak back into the kitchen and grab a knife. Slowly, she started to scoot her feet backwards in that direction. She reached the wall, and she felt her way along and into the kitchen, going as quickly as she dared. When she reached the table the food was prepared on, she felt around with her hand. The large wood cutting board was wet. Finally, her fingers touched a knife. She grabbed it and quickly stuck it under her shirt, clutching the handle in her armpit. Just then, the lights went back on. Tina knelt down, lest anyone see her through the door. She could hear a voice from the dining area saying something calming, but she couldn't make out the words. Tina walked casually out of the kitchen, her bowl of salad still in her hand. She started looking for a table. Someone grabbed her elbow as she walked past. "'Hey,' said the woman. "'What are you doing in there, newbie?' "'I don't know,' Tina said. "'When the lights went out, I got scared. I thought that someone was attacking us. I was trying to hide.' Everyone around was staring at her. The woman grabbed Tina's bowl, pulling it down so she could see inside it. "'Maybe you thought you could get more food,' she said suspiciously, then angrily. "'Everyone gets the same amount of food. It's only fair.' Tina pulled her bowl away and went to the last free chair. She ate silently, looking down at her bowl and refusing to answer the questioning looks of the people sitting around her. It hurt, after everyone had been so warm and friendly to her, to now feel that they were suspicious of her, even though they had good reason to be. For a short moment, while she ate, she had some time with her own thoughts, which is what she had been craving for hours. Yet the spacey, light-headed feeling was still with her, had never left her, and her thoughts seemed to swirl around in her head, jumping to new subjects without her wanting them to. She wondered if this was part of the design of the cult experience, to keep her so sleep-deprived and hungry that she couldn't think clearly about her situation. After dinner, they assembled at a pair of huge, heavy-looking wooden doors that were kept shut with a large wooden crossbar. Two groups of people with backpacks were waiting by the door, and the crowd milled around, shaking their hands, hugging them, and saying, May the light bless and guide you to them. Who are they? Tina asked Jen. They're the team sent out to look for new penitents, said Jen in a hushed voice. Like the people who grabbed me? We prefer it when people come willingly, but yes. So they'll come back with some new people to be lumens? Tina asked. If the light wills it, yes. If the light doesn't will it, they will come back alone. There's no shame in that. The light makes sure we have as many souls as we can bring to the light. She turned away to beam at the men and women, her body language telling Tina she didn't want to talk to Tina at the moment. How could I get on a team like that? You have to be a higher penitent, said Jen, not looking at Tina, which won't be for a while. And they're the only people who get to leave this place? No, said Jen. There are many jobs that involve leaving the cloisters, but that's not for you to worry about right now. The light wants you and me here right now, and it's not our place to worry about when we are ready for the responsibility of leaving. Tina sensed Jen was nearing actual anger, so she stopped. Cult members passed a message down the stairs from where there were presumably lookouts so that the coast was clear. Several members lifted the wooden beam that held the door closed and moved it aside. Other cult members opened the heavy doors, which creaked slowly open. Several members stood by the door, holding knives and clubs, looking like they were ready to attack should anyone or anything try to rush in through the door. The men and women with the backpacks exited, and the doors were closed and resecured. Next, everyone went to the chapel, with the triptych of bright light panels up at the front, and the silhouetted figure standing in front of them. When they were all seated, the figure stepped forward on the stage, and by squinting, Tina could make out some of the details of his clothes and face. He was an older white man with deeply tanned skin, wearing a flowing outfit of all white. "'I have a warning from the light,' he intoned. Everyone in the audience was perfectly silent. Our enemies in the darkness, the gangs and the drug dealers and serial killers, are conspiring to destroy us. 
They meet in dark places, putting aside their differences and making plans. There were gasps of horror and whispered prayers from the audience. One woman let out a sob. Their goal is to murder every last one of us. We must be ever vigilant. We must watch our surroundings constantly and be ready to fight at a moment's notice. We must pray that the light will protect our brave penitents who go out into the darkness to guide new souls to the light and provide for our well-being. There was a murmur of agreement. And you must always remember that no matter what happens, we have a place in the light. Those fools out there... His voice was a snarl of contempt. When they die, they spend eternity lost in darkness. When we die, we spend an eternity bathed in the warmth and love that is the ultimate light. There were sounds of pleasure and sighs of happiness now from the audience. We are all so very lucky. It is better to die after a day of being a penitent under the light than to live a hundred years as a king in the darkness. So when you come up here and stand before me in the light and revel in the glory of the light, I want you all to think about how lucky you are, and I want you to thank the light. People started traveling to the front of the stage to kneel before the light panels. As they waited, Tina wondered about the supposed enemies of the Lumens. She had heard about gang members attacking Lumens, and vice versa. Some people talked about the Lumens like they were just another city gang. People were wary of hurting the Lumen for fear that other Lumens would come in mass looking for revenge, just as they feared hurting a gang member. She could imagine that the Lumens really did have a lot of enemies in the city, although the way Adriel portrayed them as conspiring against the Lumens didn't seem realistic to Tina. It was Tina's turn, and she knelt before the light. The light was warm, and there was the comforting sensation that she was floating. Tina wondered if she could live here, become one of these people. It wasn't so bad, now that she had been living it. There was food, a warm place to sleep, she was safe... Nobody was trying to beat her up, rob her, or rape her. What's more, she didn't feel like she needed to get high. She realized with surprise that she hadn't even thought about drugs for more than a day. There's always something to keep her busy, and she was constantly surrounded by kind, friendly people. There was nothing her mind wanted to escape from, she guessed, and so nothing that drove her to want to be high. Adriel touched Tina on the shoulder, and she got up. Feeling dizzy and confused, she went slowly down the stairs and back to her cushion. Tina forgot about the knife in her armpit, and it started to slip, but she was able to clamp down with her arm and catch it, inconspicuously, she hoped. She hadn't yet considered it, but now it occurred to her that her life here might actually be better than her life back on the streets, especially with Maricel gone. Then she remembered Maricel, and how Maricel was either trapped somewhere and in need of help, or dead and in need of revenge. Tina decided that she had to leave, no matter what. Next, the men and women split up, and Tina followed Jen to the room they slept in. Tina snuggled up into her blankets next to Jen. "'Are you mad at me?' she asked Jen. Jen seemed confused for a second, then chuckled and smiled. "'No, no. It's just that I don't want you to get into trouble. If you talk too much about going outside, especially when the doors are opening, people might get the wrong idea.' "'Oh, okay,' Tina said. "'Thanks.' Tina was exhausted, and her body wanted nothing more than to drift off immediately into unconsciousness. She knew, though, that if she could stay up, she might have a chance to move around without being watched and followed. Under the blankets, to stay awake, Tina scratched and pinched the skin of her belly with her fingernails. She held her breath until her heart started to race, and slowly let herself breathe again. When nobody else in the room was stirring, Tina slowly, quietly removed the sheets and got out of bed. She went into the bathroom, sat on the toilet for a few minutes, and came back out. It was dark, but she could make out no eyes on her. She had been walking all day on the cold stone in bare feet, wishing she had shoes. Yet now, her lack of shoes allowed her to quietly pad across the room and into the hall. She assumed there were guards up on the roof, or watching from a window or whatever. She also assumed that there would be no way she could get out of the main door open by herself. She had seen other doors that looked like they might go outside, but they were barricaded. There were the windows. All were high up on the walls. Some had cracked and pockmarked stained glass. Others had blue or green tarp in them. 
If she could get to one covered in tarp, she could cut through the tarp and climb out. And then once she was outside, she would need shoes, but she could steal some from a sleeping cult member. What about lookouts? She could see light coming in through the stained glass, and could only imagine the lumens kept lights burning outside all night long. Would she be able to escape without being seen? If she were seen, could she run to a hiding place? Perhaps she could steal the van. She had only driven in VR games as a kid, but she thought she could do it reasonably well in real life. She moved slowly through the cloisters. Everything was well lit, so there was no chance of hiding in the shadows should anyone come. She just had to keep her ears open for footsteps, move the other way if she heard anyone coming. She went slowly, peeking around corners before going around them. Tina found some windows that were not so high up, but the parts she could reach had all been boarded up, with thick bolts apparently driven right into the stone walls. Tina made notes of tables and chairs, and of the lowest tarp-covered windows. She thought if she moved a table and put a chair on top of it and stood on that chair, she could reach. If she dangled herself out the window on the other side, she should be able to drop without getting hurt. Perhaps, though, she could find some way to cut the power on the lights. She smiled at the idea. The lumens had used bright lights to capture her, so it would be fitting if she could use darkness to escape. What she needed to find was a circuit breaker. She had an idea that circuit breakers were usually in the basement, so she made her way to the stairs. As she went slowly down the stairs, she heard a voice. It was a man's voice, speaking rhythmically as if reciting a prayer over and over again. She stopped, listening for a bit, and then decided she couldn't risk it. She headed back up the stairs. She was in a room at the top of the stairs, trying to think of what to do next, when Jen came walking around the corner. Tina noticed that Jen was also barefoot, which was probably why Tina hadn't heard her coming. Tina! Jen whispered as she closed the distance between them. What are you doing? I couldn't sleep, Tina whispered back. I was just looking around. You don't want to do that, Tina. You don't want to get caught wandering around outside your bed at night. I don't want to get caught wandering around. They'll think we're up to something not good. It's okay, Tina said. Just go back to bed. I've just got a lot of energy. I'll be back soon. No, Tina, please, she whispered plaintively. It's not good what you're doing. Tina looked at Jem for a bit, trying to gauge how much she could trust her. Tina was so tired, so exhausted, it made it hard to think clearly. Should she give up for the night and work more the following night? Should she trust Jen enough to tell her what was going on? Maybe she could go back to bed, wait for Jen to fall asleep, and get up again. Okay, Tina whispered. I'll go with you. They walked slowly down the hallway. I've seen you yawning all day long, Jen whispered. You're only a day out of the prayer box. You must be exhausted. Can you tell me what you're really doing up? Tina realized she'd have to give Jen a better story than that she had insomnia. She hadn't thought of anything, though. Couldn't force her brain to come up with anything. I'll tell you tomorrow, Tina whispered back. Why can't you tell me now? Tina bit her lip. Tina, why can't you tell me now? Tina stopped walking. She turned to face Jen. She took Jen's hand and held it companionably. Listen, Jen, you've been really nice to me. Everyone here has been nice to me. This place is great, but I have something I need to do out there. A friend of mine is missing, might have been murdered. The police aren't looking for her. Nobody is. If anything happens to her, or if she's dead and her murderer kills somebody else while I'm in here, that will be my fault, right? And I I just feel like I can't really embrace the light while this is hanging over me. Jen squeezed her hands hard. Adriel always says, we can't save the outside world, we can only save ourselves. Those people out there, they're living in darkness. Of course they're going to kill or get killed. All kinds of things are going to happen to them. Trying to create justice out there is like trying to scoop water out of the ocean. The only way to truly save anyone is to bring them to the light. And so our main duty, our only duty, is to save ourselves, save each other. What happens out there isn't important anymore. Only what happens in here is important. 
We must be strong and we must be united. And we can only think about how to serve the light. Do you understand, Tina? Tina felt tears in her eyes. She didn't know why. She didn't feel sad, only exhausted. I, I understand, Jen. You're right. You people, you're the only real family I ever really had. I don't know why I'm thinking about stuff going on out there when I should be here helping you. She embraced Jen and they held each other for several seconds. I'm glad, said Jen. They went back to the woman's sleeping area, and Tina and Jen snuggled up in their respective blanket piles. Tina tried hard to stay awake, but failed. Something woke Tina a little while later. She heard voices whispering urgently. She opened her eyes. Jen was not in her pile of blankets, but the other women around them still appeared to be sleeping. Tina shifted her body, turning her head towards the voices, trying to make it look like the normal, restless movements of a sleeping person. Through mostly closed eyes, she peeked at the four standing figures. She could only see the bottom halves of their bodies. One was barefoot and female. She recognized Jen's voice. The others were male. One of the men said something to Jen in a reassuring tone, and Jen recognized the voice of the old man from her encounter session. Two of the men approached, and Tina sat up, shedding the blankets. The men were big, and they looked determined. They reached out to her, and she tried to wriggle backwards, but they grabbed her arms. They hauled her to her feet, the last of the blankets falling off her legs. "'What are you doing?' Tina demanded, in a voice loud enough to make prone figures all around her stir. The older man approached her. "'You were very lucky to have a friend like Jen,' he said. Then to the men, "'Come on.' The two men started pulling her along. "'I didn't do anything!' Tina cried. She tried to keep her arms near her, as the knife was still clenched in her armpit, but that meant she had to walk where the two men were pulling her. All around her, people were sitting up, watching silently. There were a few coughs. Tina was marched out of the room. When she realized they were heading towards the stairs leading down to the basement level where the cells were, she began to panic. Please, she said, please don't lock me in that little box again. It's torture. It's fucking torture. It's clear, the older man said, his voice calm, that you weren't spiritually or psychologically ready for the freedom we gave you. Only the fact that your friend cared so much prevented you from doing something that would have been disastrous to your soul. Please, Tina begged, have mercy, have compassion. Being in that box is one of the worst things that's ever happened to me. You can't sleep. You can't get comfortable. I'd rather be dead. Sometimes it takes extreme measures to combat the darkness inside you, the old man said. With a sudden, unexpected jerk, Tina twisted her torso, and the man holding onto her right arm lost his grip. Quickly, she put her hand up her shirt, reaching for the knife held by her left armpit. She pulled it out and slashed at the arm of the man still holding her. He released his grip, stepping backwards away from the knife. Tina's bare feet pushed off the stone floor and hurtled towards the older man. He hesitated, turned to run, but Tina was too close. Tina's body slammed into his, and they both stumbled forward, but didn't fall. She grabbed his hair with one hand and put her knife to the side of his neck, ready to plunge the point in. Don't fight! She screeched at him. Don't fight! She twisted them both around and saw the other two men looking shocked, unsure what to do. We're going to the door, Tina said angrily. We're going to the door and you're going to open it and let me out. And don't make a move towards me or I swear to fuck I'm killing this guy. One of the two men found his voice, shouting, Help! Tina started pulling the old man in the direction of the door. Walk! She hissed at him. I will fucking kill you if you try to stop me. Tina could hear shouts in the distance. As they walked, a crowd of wide-eyed cultists, both male and female, most unarmed but some with weapons, started to show up from either side of the corridor. There was frightened, excited murmuring. Stay back! Tina shouted to him. Stay back or I kill this guy! The growing crowd kept a distance, but moved along with Tina. They got to the room with the big wooden door. Open it! Tina demanded of the two men who had grabbed her. Open the fucking thing now! They hesitated, looked at each other, looked around them. Ten! Tina counted angrily. Nine! Eight! Tina saw a light coming from the hallway, a bright light that moved. Other people in the crowd noticed it, too, and moved out of the way. Some moved back towards the wall, then went down on their knees. 
As the crowd parted, Tina could see it was a person. He was holding a staff and wearing bands on his arms and legs, all of which glowed intensely, enough that Tina could not look directly at him. He moved calmly towards Tina, but then stopped about twenty paces away. When he spoke, Tina recognized the voice of Adriel. Michael, he said in a calm voice, my old friend, do you love the light? You know I do, said the old man Tina was holding, in a scared voice. She noticed he was trembling. And do you love me? You know I do. And do you believe that anyone who dies serving the light will bask in the warmth and love of the light forever? I do. Then please, show this poor, angry, misguided girl what it means to have no fear, only love. The old man Tina was holding reached up suddenly with both hands, grabbing at the hand with which Tina held the knife. For a fraction of a second, Tina expected him to try to pull the knife away, and she tensed her arm to try to stop him. What he did, however, was to push the knife into his own neck. She felt it puncture through the flesh and sink in at least an inch before hitting something hard. There was a split-second pause, and then warm blood gushed out on Tina's hands. The old man sank down. His grip on her hand, the hand that held the knife, stayed strong. It took a burst of strength to yank the knife away, lest it be carried down to the ground as well. Tina looked up, saw hundreds of eyes looking at her angrily. She wondered if they would kill her now, or put her back in the closet. Tina realized she had only one chance. She burst forward, running straight towards Adriel. She slashed the knife out in wide arcs in front of her as she ran. People closed in, grabbing for her. She felt fingers grasp her skin and clothes from behind, but the fingers slipped off. Someone stepped in front of her with outstretched hands. She slashed at the hands, feeling the blade cut through flesh. She stabbed at the face, and the man stepped backwards to avoid the blade. She ducked under his armpit and was passed. Someone put a foot out to try to trip her, but she saw it and was able to jump over it. As she landed, a woman's hands caught her under the left armpit. The woman pulled, and Tina spun towards her. Tina stabbed the knife towards the woman's neck. The woman put her free hand up, but the knife slid between her fingers and pierced her windpipe. Tina tried to yank herself away, but the woman's grip remained strong. She could sense others moving towards her. Tina brought down the knife on the inside of the woman's elbow, hacking at her tendons, and the grip loosened. Tina spun away just as a club flashed downwards into where her head had been. Tina danced sideways, sidestepping, needing to keep moving, even before she could turn her body to face the right direction. In the second or two that Tina had been surging forward, Adriel had been backing up, and cult members had moved in front of him to create a wall of people. Tina turned and ran towards the wall. The men in front of Adriel braced themselves for a counterattack and an impact. At the last moment, Tina dove, sliding between a pair of legs. Her non-knife hand grabbed onto Adriel's ankle, her hand brushing the bright anklet. Some part of her expected it to burn her, but it was cool. Tina yanked the ankle, and the man fell backwards. She scrambled forward. She clawed her way up onto the man, even his hands grabbed at her feet. By the time the hands on her feet pulled her to a halt, she was far enough along Adriel's body to reach up and put her knife blade against his neck. He dies! She screeched. Stop or he dies! Let go of me! The hands on her feet let go, and she scrambled right on top of Adriel, her chest positioned over her hand holding the knife. She could see now, past the blotches and burned into her retina, the man's scared face. Tina took a deep breath. You have two choices, she said angrily, not turning away from Adriel's face. Let me go, or your prophet dies. Then, to Adriel, she demanded, Tell them what the light wants. Do it now. The light, he gasped. The light wants its prophet preserved. She turned her head and growled, Back off! People stepped backwards. Tina slid off of the man, lying sideways on her hip on the stone floor. Get up slowly, she said to Adriel. There's still a chance for forgiveness, he said as he got up on his elbows. Oh, shut up, Tina snarled. I'm tired of hearing you fucking people speak. You sound like fucking retards. Get the fuck up. Carefully, awkwardly, they both got up, and Tina managed to keep her knife near his neck. She got behind him, grabbing a bunched-up bit of his tunic with her free hand. Towards the door, now, she demanded. 
to the other, she said, Open it now! The heavy wooden bar was lifted off. The door slowly opened. People were staring, wide-eyed, mouths hanging open. I'm taking him outside, Tina said. Nobody follow. I'm going to go far enough to give me a head start, and then I'm letting him go unharmed. You got that? Don't follow, and he won't get hurt. I don't want to hurt this guy, but I will if I think you're coming after me. Stay here, right? Nobody said anything. Go, Tina said to Adriel, and they started walking outside. As she expected, it was bright out. Lights and cages sat on the edges of the rooftop, flooding the grounds all around it with light. Looking around, she could see the cloisters were built on a hill. All around, past the floodlit hill the cloisters sat on, were the dark shapes of trees, and the glow of city lights in the distance beyond them. This far north, she knew, the island was thin, and she was probably seeing the lights of the corporate centers and gated communities in the Bronx and New Jersey. She pushed Adriel down a gravel path. It led down to a street and a small old bus stop. On the other side of the street was a short stone wall, weeds spilling over it like foam spilling from a beer glass. Beyond it, thick woods sloped downwards. If she could get into the darkness of the woods, she realized, she could jettison her hostage without the other lumens seeing, without it immediately causing them to start rushing out of the cloisters to get her. Which way is the city? she asked. Which way is south? Look for darkness, he grumbled angrily. Tina quickly brought the knife up and cut a small gash on his cheek, then brought it back to his neck. He let out a small cry of pain. Come on, don't be a bitch. That's not going to get you anything. Which way is south? He pointed to the right, down the road. She saw it disappear into the darkness, flanked by thick trees on either side. Come on, she said, pushing him towards the low wall. We're going into the trees, and as soon as we're out of sight, I'll let you go, okay? She stopped him right before the wall. Take off your glowy things. He removed the anklets and bracelets and dropped them. They climbed over the fence and sank into knee-deep weeds. Tina could feel them scratching at her bare feet. She wondered if it was too late to go back and demand her shoes back. She looked down and noticed Adriel was in bare feet as well. Look, she whispered to the back of his head as they trudged through the weeds. Don't be mad, okay? Don't hold a grudge. I'm not an enemy. I don't have anything against you. I didn't want to hurt you or any of your people. You people took me against my will. Everyone was nice to me. I actually liked you guys, but I had to leave. I have things I need to do back where I live. I tried to tell you guys, tried to make you listen, and when you wouldn't, I tried to sneak out quietly. Nobody would have gotten hurt. But then your guys grabbed me, and they were going to put me in that box again. That closet. Have you ever been in that fucking thing? It's torture. It's one of the worst things that has ever happened to me. I'd rather die. I'd rather kill than go back in there. It's not my fault, okay? It's not my fucking fault. Do you understand? He didn't say anything. It's not my fault. I did what you and your people made me do. You don't have to come after me. It won't do me any good. I'm not in a gang. There's nobody you can go to war against. I'm just a girl doing what I have to. You know, to survive. He said nothing. She looked back at how far they had come. Okay, lie down, she said. On your stomach. Don't be afraid. Slowly he knelt down into the weeds, then placed himself down on the ground, his hand shielding his face from the brambles. Close your eyes and count to a hundred. Count loud. I'm going to stay nearby for a bit, and if you stop counting, or look up, or try to get up, I'll kill you, okay? Just count to a hundred. Even when I go, if I hear you stop counting, I'll come back and kill you, right? Okay, do it. He started to count. Trying not to make much noise, Tina picked up her feet and moved down the hill. When she was far enough away that she doubted he would hear, she broke into a run. The hill was steep, and at every step the weeds kicking the ground scratched her skin. She found herself grabbing onto skinny trees to slow her downwards rush, lest she start going so fast she couldn't stop. In the darkness, the trees were just big black shapes. Tina tried to keep track of directions, hoped her reckless movement through the dark didn't cause her to get turned around. If the direction Adriel pointed was south, then downhill was east. She'd travel east, then start traveling south. The brush ended in another short stone wall. She hopped down from it onto a dirt path. She could make out an old bench with vines growing on it a few paces away. 
There were light poles, but the lights were dead. Tina walked to the other side of the path, where the downward slope continued. She stepped again into the weeds and started down the slope again. Soon, lights started to appear through the trees, down at the bottom of the slope. She came out of the trees and onto a street. A few of the street lights here were lit, and the stars and moon supplemented the light, making most of the surfaces around her visible. All along one side of the street was the park, a large, long hill rising up into the darkness. On the other side were four- and five-story apartment complexes, all made out of the same dirty reddish-brown brick. There were only a few dim lights on in some of the windows. Tina walked along the street, trying to catch her breath. She realized she was limping. Looking down, she could see that one of her feet was leaving a smudge of blood whenever she stepped. Tina cursed quietly. She sat down on the brick wall and used the knife to remove the right leg of her jeans. When she had the leg removed, leaving her ankle bare, she wrapped it and then tied the denim tightly around her foot. She hoped the several layers of denim would soak up enough of the blood that she wouldn't leave a visible trail behind her. She got up again and started jogging down the street. The apartment complexes gave way to smaller buildings. They were also made out of the same reddish-brown brick, but they had more of an industrial feel, with roll-up metal doors and large metal vents instead of windows. As she walked, she saw some fenced-in parking lots filled with burned-out hulks of cars. Then Tina noticed a street sign that read Broadway. For a split second, she felt joy. Broadway would lead her back down south, either to a subway station or, if she had to, all the way back down to lower Manhattan. Then she realized the danger. Broadway would be the first place the Lumens would look for her. Any second now, they would come driving up or down the street in their van, probably shining bright lights into the darkness to dispel any shadows she might hide in. Tina increased her pace to a fast jog and took to the first left she could. She found herself on a thin street. All the streets in the parts of Manhattan she was familiar with were arrow straight, but this one curved. There were old trees dotting the sidewalk, big but with few leaves, their roots tearing up the pavement. The walls of the buildings around her had ivy on them. So far she had not seen another person. As the street curved, she tried to keep track of the direction she was heading, not wanting to end up accidentally heading north when she wanted to be south. As she walked, the buildings started to look very old. They were also brick, but now of a more gray and less red color. The small street she was on came to an end, making a T with another street. Across the street was a very steep hill. Looking up, she could see huge brown apartment blocks, probably 20 stories or more. The way they sat perched at the top of that steep hill gave Tina the uneasy feeling that they might topple over onto her at any moment. There were no stairs or anything leading up to the buildings, so Tina assumed they could only be reached from whatever patch of city was on the other side. Tina kept turning corners, trying to keep her direction southerly. At one point, the street she was on was pointing what she thought was east and west, and she couldn't find an intersection to take her south. Instead, she decided to try to cut through the block. She headed between two big apartment buildings, walking over asphalt that someone had drawn chalk hopscotch squares on. As she headed deeper into the block, the space between buildings closed up into a tight alley, blocked by a chain-link fence, with vertical wooden slats strung through the links. She peered through the holes between the slats and couldn't see much. She started climbing the fence, which was hard because the wooden slats blocked any hole large enough to stick a part of her foot through. Finally, gripping the small spaces between the slats and the links with her fingers and toes, she was able to make it over. She took a moment to rest, and let her eyes adjust to the new level of darkness. The apartment buildings rose up high on either side, letting in very little star and moonlight. As her eyes adjusted, something beautiful began to appear. On either side of her, the walls were covered with luminescent graffiti, glowing blue, green, red, and yellow. The light seemed faint at first, but grew more intense as her pupils expanded. Stylized words, symbols, and cartoonish figures coated each wall, expanding down the alley. Tina had seen a few glowing tags here and there before, but had never seen such a large amount in one place. It was awesome, all the more so for being unexpected. Tina decided to stay and rest here for a bit. She sat down and tried to decipher what was going on in the graffiti. She had been told that every symbol in graffiti meant something, and that graffiti could tell a whole story for those who knew how to read it. 
To her it was stylish and beautiful, but in the end she couldn't glean any meaning from it. Having tasted a bit of rest made it hard for her to get back up again, but she forced herself to. Slowly she walked down the alley, avoiding the black shapes of who knows what kind of trash dotting the ground. At the other end was another fence, which she climbed over, finding herself on another quiet street. Looking up over the rooftops, Tina saw, about five or six blocks away, a huge smokestack belching a steady stream of something up into the sky. The air smelled like rubber and bleach. The smoke or steam was illuminated from below. Tina figured it was some big industrial plant. The grounds fenced in and illuminated with work lights so the workers there could keep the plant churning away 24 hours a day. Tina considered making her way there, begging for help, but she had loitered outside industrial facilities before and knew the security guards were very strict. After a few more twists and curving streets, she found herself back on Broadway. She considered turning back, but decided the streets she had come from were too maze-like, and that if she wanted to make any progress towards getting out of this part of town, it would have to be on Broadway. She figured that if lumens were coming, she would see their lights and hear their vehicles and could duck down a side street or hide behind the many piles of trash that dotted the sidewalks. Tina started walking, trying to keep up a quick pace. The park was gone, and here Broadway seemed to be dominated by medium-sized apartment blocks. Some, but not all, were made of the same reddish brick that was so ubiquitous further north. The first floors of many of the apartment blocks featured restaurants. They weren't chains, but looked like small mom-and-pop places with faded old signs. They were all closed, with the metal shutters rolled down protecting their windows. Just the sight of them made Tina realize how hungry she was. There were also pharmacies and liquor stores, as well as many vacant storefronts, their signs removed or spray-painted over. Tina heard voices. It sounded like two or more women chatting. Tina couldn't tell where the voices were coming from, but they seemed to be getting near as she walked. Then she spotted three figures sitting in an old bus shelter. Tina turned slightly towards the left, wanting to cross to the other side of the street without making it obvious she was trying to avoid them. As she stepped into the street, though, she heard one of them say, Who's that? Tina didn't look, but out of the corner of her eye she could see them stand. Hey! One of them called out to her. Tina didn't look, kept walking. Hey! She called again, and she could see them starting to walk after her. Then, in an angry voice, Hey, bitch! I'm fucking talking to you! Tina turned to face them. The kitchen knife was still in her hand, but she made sure the blade was pointing back behind her. She didn't want to seem like a threat, but she wanted to be able to lash out quickly if they should attack her. As they approached, she saw that it was three young African-American women, about her age, all fairly muscular and wearing skin-tight black bodysuits, with straps along the waist, arms, and legs. The suits were decorated with letters and symbols and fluorescent spray paint. They had matching black gloves and boots. One wore what it looked like an armored ski mask. The other two just had black knit caps. One was smoking a cigarette, and each was holding a brown glass bottle in a paper bag. Skimborgs, Tina thought. The northernmost part of the city was Skinborg turf, excepting, she supposed, the cloisters. She knew they wore high-tech suits of armor, skins, made out of materials that were light and flexible but provided excellent protection. She knew they were regarded as one of the meanest, most violent, most warlike gangs in the city. Tina had been traipsing through their turf and had no idea what they would do about it. Her heart was beating fast, but she tried hard not to act scared. She realized how horrible and funny, how much like this crazy city it would be, for her to escape from a thousand angry cult members and get killed by three young gang members. They looked at her appraisingly. Tina wondered what she would look like to them. Disheveled, dirty, bloody, barefoot except for one pant leg wrapped around her right foot, holding a kitchen knife. Hey, bitch, one of them said, and gave Tina's shoulder a small push. This is Skimborg turf. When you're on our turf, the least you can fucking do is answer when we talk to you. Sorry, Tina said hoarsely. So what the fuck happened to you, anyway? Tina wasn't sure whether she should look them in the eyes or look down at the ground submissively. She ended up vacillating between the two. I just escaped from the lumens, Tina said. They kidnapped me, tried to brainwash me, but I got a knife, and I held it to their leader and made them let me go. They're probably looking for me right now. 
I, I, I didn't mean to be on your turf. I'm just trying to find a subway stop so I can go home. They thought about this, looked at each other. No fucking kidding, said one. You say you held a knife to the leader of the Lumens? Yeah, Tina said. You're not fucking with us. No, Tina said, wondering if she should add a ma'am. They took turns patting her quite hard on the shoulder. Good for you, skinny girl, said one with a voice full of mirth. You got some fucking balls. Hardly anybody ever escapes from those shit fucks. She looked at her friends. What do you say? Let's take her to the subway, said one. Yeah, said the other. Come on, skinny girl. We'll make sure you get to the subway without any lumens fucking with you. I think they're pretty pissed, Tina said. They all laughed. No fucking doubt, said one. Don't worry. I'll call some friends in case they come at us in force. They started walking down the street, and one of the skimboards pulled out a cell phone and told it, Call Mac. Then she spoke to it. Yo, it's me. Why are you fucking sleeping? Get into your fucking skin and get out here. Get your brother and Chaz, too. Because there's this girl that just escaped from the lumens, and she's got a shitload of lumens out here looking for her, and we're going to take her to the subway. Yeah, we're just coming up on Chuck's. Tina noticed a restaurant sign reading Chuck's ahead of them. As they walked, more skimborgs joined them, until Tina was walking with an entourage of eight skimborgs. You heard, said a skimborg with a big muscular body, but the voice of an adolescent. Tina said she was mostly just scratched, but that she had a painful cut on the bottom of her foot. He gave Tina a pain pill from a small mince tin and a swig of something alcoholic from a flask to drink it down. They wanted to hear the story, and Tina told them. They seemed to enjoy it, and she was asked to retell it as new skimborgs joined the party. They didn't care much about how the Lumens lived or had treated her, but did want to hear about every blow Tina had landed as she escaped. They offered playful opinions about the fight, and some even acted out combat moves they would have used had they been in her place. They steal your shoes? One asked, and Tina said they had. That sucks, he replied. A van appeared, driving slowly down Broadway, and the skimborgs stopped. They had been walking down the middle of the street, with Tina in the center of the group. The skimborgs turned to stare at the van driver. The van slowed, veered around them, and then sped up again once past them. As it left, the skimborgs laughed and yelled curses at the van. Was that the Lumens? Tina asked, and a skimborg told her it was. At one point, a train rumbled up the tracks on Broadway, forcing the group to move. The train had about a dozen tanker cars, with warnings penciled on the side in white paint reading toxic and flammable. A few of the skimborgs jumped onto metal ladders on the tanks, hanging on just long enough to spray some graffiti on the tanks, then jumping off again and jogging back up to the group. About fifteen blocks later, with pre-dawn light visible in the sky to the west, they came to an elevator sitting in the middle of the sidewalk, with a familiar sign for subway on it. Tina was used to subway entrances being stairwells one walked into, and never seen a stop that was just an elevator. The skimborg hit the button for her, and the elevator slowly rose up out of the sidewalk, and the doors opened. Some of the skimborgs were whispering and passing something back and forth. One of the women who first spotted Tina peeled away from the little group and approached Tina, something in her hand. She held out her hand, and when Tina reciprocated, the skimborg slipped Tina a wad of bills. Get yourself some new shoes, she said quietly, and a decent meal. Consider it a reward from the skimborgs for taking out one of them lumen fucks. Thanks, Tina said, surprised. As the elevator traveled down slowly, she counted the money, forty-five dollars. In the subway station, which was empty, she used one of the bills to buy her way past the turnstile gates, and was pleased to receive change. She got on the next southbound train, and found nobody was on it but sleeping street people. Tina settled into a seat, wrapping her arms around her chest to try to stay warm, and tried not to fall asleep. It was morning when Tina trudged up the stairs out of the St. Mark's and 3rd station. It was a fairly short walk from there back to the Sunrise Hotel. Tina stopped along the way at a liquor store that she knew carried sundries. She picked up a prepackaged sandwich, a bottle of cola, a tube of antibiotic ointment, and a small package of band-aids shrink-wrapped onto a paper card. She limped to the hotel entrance, but it was locked and she didn't have her key. She sat on the pavement, ate her sandwich, and drank her cola. 
After about an hour, the manager came in and unlocked the door. What happened to you? he asked, to which Tina replied, Long story. Tina went straight to the bathroom, where she washed her feet and ankles in the sink. There were a lot of scratches, but only one deep cut on the bottom of her foot. She washed that out thoroughly, applied the ointment, and put a few layers of band-aids over it. She washed as much blood off of herself as she could without getting her clothes too wet. Then she went to the room. Joe and Tabitha were sleeping inside. She had to knock several times to wake them. Where the fuck were you? Joe asked. We haven't heard from you for days. We thought you were dead. Those Lumen cult fucks kidnapped me, Tina said. I was just barely able to escape. They wanted to hear the details, but Tina stopped them. Did you hear anything about Marisol? They looked at each other sheepishly. We haven't heard anything, said Joe. Well, have you been talking to anybody? Have you been asking questions? Did you go down to the city hospital and ask the ambulance drivers? Tina, Joe said in a kind voice, don't get mad or anything, but we sort of figured, well, it's been a long time, like a week. We could spend all day asking questions, and we're not really going to find anything. At this point, either Marisol will show up someday, or she won't. Fuck that, Tina said. I fought my way out of that place because I wanted to find out what happened to Marisol. You fuckers can give up, but I'm not going to. She stripped off her blade clothes, put on some clothes from the floor that didn't smell too dirty, and laid down next to Joe on the mattress. Tabitha turned off the lights. Now that she was lying down with nothing to do, she began to feel all the various places on her body that hurt. Despite this, she drifted off. (laughs) 